Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Straight out of Cobham, the show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Coming up on this episode, all change please, tabloid headline writers rejoice as it's buck off, check out and Marina sets sail. Meanwhile, Todd Bowley's throwing himself into his new job slash jobs. We talk transfers as crypto crashes, the price of sterling looks reasonable, whilst Rafinha could be arriving too. And there's the latest instalment of our always anticipated weekly quiz. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic, this is straight out of Cobham. Straight from the pub. Listen, incredible scenes today. Not only are we back recording a podcast face-to-face in live living colour for the first time since, I reckon, March 2020. We're actually sat outside a pub on what is a very pleasant day in our nation's capital. It's me, Matt Davis-Adams, joined by two of the Athletics finest. I've got Dominic Fifield with me. Hi, Dom. Good afternoon, Matt. Good Welcome afternoon to, to you too. Isn't it nice <laughs> that this has coincided with the common end of season drinks? <laughs> it's <laughs> Liam... almost like it's contrived. <laughs> <laughs> almost, yeah. Liam Toobie's with us too. How you doing, Liam? Very good. Wonderfully off-season vibe. Yeah, love it. I mean, me, lager, Dom, lager, Liam, uh, lager, sometimes cider. I'll have, I'll have non-alcoholic lager, professional. Thank you very okay, much. Okay, all right. Well done. I didn't get that memo. Um, yes. <laughs> so if you do hear anything weird, we are outside a pub in Paddington slash Edgware Road. So there you go. But we're having a nice time anyway. All right, we better talk Chelsea. First up today, let's do the boardroom shuffle. Uh, last week, typically, when half of the pod were on holiday, Chelsea announced significant changes to the boardroom structure, with Chairman Bruce Buck and Director Marina Granovskaya leaving. They'd be followed a few days later by Petr Cech, who departs having been in place as technical and performance advisor for three years. As you would expect, The Athletic has covered this thoroughly. Dom's written about the new people in positions of power, whilst Liam's penned a piece on Petr. Uh, we'll talk about the new faces soon, but let's start with those departing. Bruce Buck, stepping down as chairman, after 19 years. Liam, was this the most obvious of the three exits? Uh, unpopular amongst sections of supporters due to his role in the Super League and also so closely allied to Roman Abramovich? Yeah, I mean, he was Abramovich's lawyer when he took over the club back in 2003. And, you know, there were always suggestions that that, that he kind of got the chairman's job as a result of that and, and everything sprang, sprang from there. And the argument that you would make to or that you would have made to retain Buck, even for sort of an interim period, was that, oh, he's got all these connections with the Premier League and with governing bodies and things like that. But all of those relationships are soured because of his role in the in the Super League. You've seen at Manchester United, Ed Woodward's gone, in part because I think his value to the club was hindered by that, you know, the way he was perceived in the wider football community. Um, Buck has that same problem. And then you add in you know, the, the association with Abramovich and the the complications that would have for, for any new ownership. I just couldn't really see any other outcome. Yeah. Dom, do you think that he actually wanted to stay and, and he's got this role as a senior advisor? Is, is that just a, a polite nod to 
yeah, you've done a good job, we'll give you a call if needs be, but realistically, he's not going to get that call, is he? I'd be very surprised if he did. Um, but yes, I, th- I think it's a sort of, it's a bit of a token gesture to thank him for his years of service, 19 years across the Abramovich tenure. Um, would he have wanted to stay? I, I think you could ask that question about all three of the major departures, actually. I mean, Marina and, and Pedacek as well. Their roles would have been different. Uh, the, their influence would have been very different under new ownership. And, you know, if you've been in Sitchi for that length of time and suddenly you're your role is, is altered, not, not because of anything you've done, but you know, because the circumstances around you has, has changed, then I think part of you probably does think, well, actually, I'm, I'm not really going to be able to fulfil the same kind of duties that I did in the past, so maybe it's best to move on. Uh, Marina Granovsky then leaves as director, the, the key figure in terms of transfer negotiations, player contracts, etc. Do you think, unlike Buck, Don, that there was any kind of desire on the new owner's part to, to keep her on because of her connections and because of her reputation in the game? Yes, I suspect there probably was. I suspect that there, that people within the new regime recognised that they needed somebody with her contacts and with her, with her influence and her reputation within football in terms of dealing with other clubs, with, with agents, uh, with sporting directors elsewhere. Um, so there was a logic for her to stick about until the end of this transfer window. And indeed, in the statement where it was confirmed that she was leaving slightly earlier than we anticipated. Uh, they did say that she would be there in an advisory capacity if required you know, over the course of this transfer window until September the 1st. So they can call upon her potentially if they want to. That may have changed behind the scenes because it, it, it sort of feels as if the new ownership have, have tried to, to sort of jump in two-footed on the whole recruitment side in particular, which is obviously what Marina Granoskaya would, would concentrate on day to day uh, and they've, they seem to have quite, be quite enjoying this experience of, of exploring how the football transfer market works um, with everything from trades to uh, loaning off £100 million players back to the clubs from which we signed them. So maybe, maybe the sort of attitude and the, the intensity and the desire to keep her sort of waned a bit over the, that little period um, and indeed you know ultimately she was always going to leave because like Bruce Buck she was closely associated with Roman Abramovich you couldn't really have a situation where she was in situ beyond certainly beyond this transfer window um, because they need a fresh start on that front uh, well we're heading to the Athletic to read a Danny Taylor piece on Granol Skyrie he's also written about her potential replacement Michael Edwards and Paul Mitchell both being considered for that. How do, how do we reflect on her time at Chelsea overall, Liam? Because if you go in recency bias, you go, oh, she signed Lukaku and that didn't work out at all. But that, that's not the full story, is it? No, I think it's a mixed record. Um, and when you're, when you're looking at her biggest successes, I think you're looking at some of the sales that Chelsea managed to pull off in the mid-2010s. You know, Diego Costa, Alvaro Morata were borderline genius the amount of value that Chelsea got out of those sales given the circumstances and then of course the Eden Hazard deal has aged extremely well and obviously extremely poorly for him unfortunately um, and then you look at some of the some of the purchases I have to stress every single time we talk about this Marina Granovskaya never decided who Chelsea bought some fans still seem to labour under that assumption that was not the case the Recruitment was a conversation and I think Chelsea's record reflects the fact that it was at times a dysfunctional conversation. 
that they didn't always come out with the right decisions from where you have the owner involved and you have the recruitment structure you have the coach and every new coach you appoint is a very different person Marie Granovskaya I think was you know walking the line of all of that and trying to navigate the the best possible value it's clear that she hasn't ended on the best note transfer wise with the Lukaku deal because that is an unequivocal disaster there's no dressing that up and I you know I I also think it's it's pretty clear to see the subtext of her and of Czech leaving now, I think, is that they probably would have gone a different direction under, uh, on Lukaku this summer. I'm not sure they would have been so keen to loan him back on Inter's terms just because Tuchel basically said that was probably the best option for the squad because historically Chelsea have not backed coaches in that way. They've tended to, on the surface, you know, given time for everyone to work things out. But in reality, you're backing the player because the player is the expensive asset. And that's why Chelsea have ended up having such a high turnover of coaches. This was Bowley and Clearlake showing that they're going to go in a very different direction. At the moment, it's a very coach-led direction. Tuchel has never had this much influence over transfers in his entire career. And it'll be very interesting to see where it all goes. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a big moment, her leaving, because she's, she's been the face of Chelsea's recruitment, if not the voice, because she never speaks. Uh, didn't even speak in her leaving statement. Did you notice that? Yeah, uh, in contrast to Czech, there were quotes from Czech, none from Granovskaya. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of abrupt and, and a silent exit, but I'm not sure it would have been any other way, would it? Significant figure, Dom, in, in Chelsea's recent history, but, but also... I think it's worth comment that she, she might be one of the most significant female figures at boardroom level in the, in the history of English football, right? There's yeah. her and Karen Brady, and, and the list kind of ends there. And, you know, I'm sure her job was made slightly more difficult at times by that. I often think the fact that we refer to it as Marina rather than Marina yeah. Granovskaya all the time is part of that. So an important part of Chelsea's history, but also in sort of changing the industry. In, in some way. We also can't pronounce Granovskaya. That's true, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, you're right. It's, she, she was very influential. And, and I think certainly in, when she started doing the sort of negotiations over transfers, I think we've, we've heard anecdotal evidence of, you know, agents thinking that they could, they could get a deal out of, out of her that they maybe wouldn't have got uh, elsewhere. And actually they, they found that she was, she was tougher than they anticipated and actually fought Chelsea's corner and got some absolutely unbelievable deals. And over the course of the decade or so that she was, doing that job at Stamford Bridge she she established her reputation and she was a formidable opponent but also somebody that people really respected the agents they talk about I mean I've spoken to a to a couple in the over this summer who who wanted to get players into Chelsea and were, were attempting to sort of contact Marina and, and Petr Cech for that matter and and because of the sort of state of flux that the the club was in they they, they couldn't they couldn't get hold of them. They were, it was radio silence on that front. And, and the reality is they don't have anyone else to turn to because these people have been running that, that recruitment um, aspect of Chelsea for so long. Um, Marina Granoskar in particular, as opposed to Petr Cech. But she, yeah, she established herself within the game. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens next. I don't, don't, I don't suppose she will stay in football. She, she probably... Maybe if Abramovich buys another club. Well, well yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I mean... I mean, if you took, if you just for a second just separated the whole Abramovich and Granovskaya aspect of it all, 
on the basis of what she's done at Chelsea, you'd, you'd imagine that there'd be football clubs out there that would want to hire her. But I don't think it's possible to actually separate them. That, and that, hence Liam's point about him, but if you bought another club, then, then maybe it would go down that road. Just a final thing on this. I know it said in the statements that Buck Granovskaya would be retained in advisory capacities. I don't think they will be consulted on anything. Um, just by the way this has gone down, you know, Bowley is being incredibly hands-on. He is interim sporting director as well as controlling owner at the moment, talking directly to agents. And he is the one that Clear Lake trusts to run the club. So they're choosing their own path now and they're not going to be consulting the old ownership. It's This is the new era. We'll talk about Bowley shortly, but I want a word on, on Petr Cech. So I really enjoyed your piece, Liam. Uh, if you want to read it and you're not a subscriber, head to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod to sign up today. It's only a pound for your first six months. Um, I wasn't really sure what he did, but but the piece told me. I mean, he, he was actually quite pivotal, wasn't he? he, he you associate Petr Cech in this role, I think, with the signing of Edward Mendy, but he actually was crucial in, in the talks with not only Thomas Tuchel, but Werner. He spent a lot of time working with Kepa. It, it wasn't just a, a kind of a role to, to give an old boy a nice job. He, he actually had a lot of input. Yeah, I remember talking to people at Chelsea when Czech first came in. You know, it was a very woolly job title. It wasn't... I think there are fans that even look at the titles of sporting director and, and technical director, which is what Michael Emanalo was, and even think those are a little bit vague at times. Um, I think there's more understanding what sporting directors do now, but even Michael Emanalo's job at times seemed a little bit blurry in terms of where he fit into the different football departments, where he fit into the recruitment structure. And Czech was just a different level level of that because he wasn't directing anything. He was an advisor. Um, And it was just explained to me that he was kind of there to try to be the glue between the different football departments of the club the first team the academy the loan players the sports science department physios all of these different things and, you know a club is far bigger than i think most fans would would think when they're first thinking about it but of course he was also really trusted by the hierarchy and he worked incredibly closely with granovskaya every day um, and he was that link between the boardroom and the, and the dressing room and I think the interesting part of his time, which was kind of the crux of that piece, was the end of the Lampard era, the start of the Tuchel era, because it's such a it's such an interesting dynamic with with the old relationship between Czech and Lampard and, and having won so much as teammates and having experienced so much, to then be an active part of the process of replacing Lampard and we have to remember it was a brutal process. Like they, they decided very, very quickly that um, Lampard was was not the man for the job before I think most fans had got there and were very proactive in sounding out replacements. That can't have been easy for Czech. But he showed that his, his first loyalty was to the job that he had and to the people that he employed him. And... Um, and he was very involved with the Rangnick talks. I mean, that's a huge sliding doors moment for that, Chelsea that's now, a, isn't a it? a massive revelation in the piece that, that left me going, phew, and wiping my brow. Well, that's been reported before. By, we reported at the time that Rangnick had been offered the job on an interim basis, which is funny considering what he later accepted at United. But yeah, big sliding doors moment. But then, of course, he's the one who convinces Tuchel. When Tuchel's having doubts about taking the job mid-season... 
about Chelsea's culture, about only having an 18-month contract, all these different unknowns that Tuchel hadn't navigated before. And of course, he'd just been burned by PSG. It was checked to put his mind at ease and, and over the course of several lengthy phone calls kind of persuaded him that it was it was too good a chance to, to pass up. And that is now his legacy, isn't it? Because Tuchel's already achieved what he's achieved and whatever happens from here... Tuchel is now far more central to Chelsea's fortunes on and off the pitch than I think anyone could have imagined when he was appointed and, and that will always be linked to Czech. Lastly, on Czech, Dom, he was also the, the voice of the voiceless, wasn't he? The, the voiceless who chose to be that way in Abramovich and Granovskaya and Bucking that it was Petr Czech who was out there, mask over his chin, trying to placate supporters when, when they were holding up the game against Brighton before the Super League transformation. And it was Petr Czech who was wheeled out in front of the Sky cameras last season to try and explain what was going on. Yeah, he was he was at the he was in the director's box away games towards the end with, with Dave Barnard as well. He's yeah, he was. I mean the Fulham Road incident, I think that, that will be the sort of the image that we will remember the second spell of Petr Cech at Chelsea you know his desperate attempt to placate the supporters and explain to them what Chelsea's stance on the Super League was was how it had changed basically should have brought his hockey pads that would have worked yeah he couldn't have been that bit if he was playing ice hockey all the time could he but um, but it's he, he Petr Cech's legacy as a player is obvious um, the European Cup and the Premier League titles from his playing days Weirdly, I, I agree with Liam. I, I, weirdly, I think that, that he actually has his part of his legacy from his time as an administrator at the club is the second European Cup because of the role he played in in bringing Tuchel to the club. So, so yeah, he was willing to to, to face the media. He was probably actually only the only one of those figures on that board who'd had any media training or any experience of doing it over the years because we used to pester him um, every year to talk to talk to one of his playing days so, but he yeah it's I think he'll be cherished clearly by Chelsea supporters probably more so for his playing days than for, for what happened afterwards but he did have a, a legacy as a as a, an administrator at the club as well so that's the outgoing boardroom figures we'll take a little break when we come back we'll talk about the new faces Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. So we come then to the nine new board members who've been appointed by Todd Bowley and Clear Lake Capital. Principal among them, Bowley himself, who becomes chairman and interim sporting director. Also joining the board are 
Bedad Egbali, Jose Feliciano and James Pate, all of whom are managing partners of Clear Lake Capital. Mark Walter, the owner of the LA Dodgers, Lakers and Sparks. Uh, Hans-Jörg Weiss, founder of the Weiss Foundation. Jonathan Goldstein, the CEO of Kane International. Barbara Sharon, the director of NBCPR and the journalist and former executive editor of The Times, Lord Daniel Finkelstein. Uh, Dom has profiled everybody mentioned on that list. Again, head over to theathletic.com slash ChelseaPod to sign up and read that if you want to subscribe. We're not going to go through all nine of them now. We'll focus on a few of the names. We'll start with Todd Bowley. We've kind of alluded to it already, Dom, but he's really thrown himself into the job so far, hasn't he? Do you admire the chutzpah, or is there a concern that, as Daniel Taylor voiced in, in one of his pieces for The Athletic, that, that he could do with some sort of authoritative experience voice helping him with this? I think it's perfectly understandable that he's behaving like this having put together the bid and the, within the excitement of, of this group buying Chelsea and, and the reality that, as, we, as you said in the previous section, that, that they have to move on from the previous regime. They can't just pluck a sporting director from the ether to, to come in and explain how the transfer work, market works. So he has to rely a bit on Tuchel and the, a bit on the existing scouting staff um, and maybe lean a bit on Marina's Granovskaya as well in the meantime. So it, it doesn't surprise me that he's he's flung himself in this enthusiastically to it all but in saying that I was taken aback slightly by the whole we're going to name you interim sporting director uh, I don't think it needed that um, necessarily can, can you think of another example uh, yeah, another I, big European club oh, of, an no. o- of an owner <laughs> doubling as the sporting I was going to talk about Ron Nodes and Brentford <laughs> but, uh, but you're talking about big clubs I was um, thinking Dr Suleiman Al Faim at Portsmouth but it's not quite those those levels is it wasn't even well, a real well, he wasn't he wasn't even real was he no. well, <laughs> I mean to, to me, it feels to me it feels maybe most similar to like Daniel Levy and Tottenham, but even Daniel Levy, because Daniel Levy runs the club on behalf of Enoch, but even he's more of a chief executive figure. He's not yeah. actually part of the ownership. For the, for the idea that a, a, a minority owner, albeit you know the the sort of operating owner, is like meeting George Mendes and and talking about transfers. It's just, I mean, we'll see how it goes. Like we can't, we can't prejudge it, and we'll we'll see what how Chelsea's window goes. But you've got the combination of Bowley and Thomas Tuchel, who, as a head coach, has never had this kind of say over transfers either. It's very interesting. But what we're saying is that he's he, a bit like Marina Granovskaya. He's not he's not identifying the talent necessarily, is no. he? I mean, that's he is just going in there to negotiate. And okay, maybe. Maybe the people that he's negotiating with will attempt to take him for a ride and, and, and get a better deal than they might have got out of Marina Granovskaya. But, but you know, I think that's that's almost to be expected from a. I mean, remember what happened in the early days of the Roman Abramovich ownership and the the amount of money that was spent and, and indeed wasted. Some of it was well spent, but a lot of it wasn't. Me too. And there, there was, I mean, there were loads, weren't there? But I mean, this, but this is aspiring to a different model, isn't it? You know, they came in talking about efficiency and not, yeah. no, no more wastage. They're looking for a clean break. It's long term. It's a long term yeah. vision. This, at the moment, they've been plunged straight into a transfer window where they've got, they suddenly realised they've got no centre-halves at the club apart from Thiago Silva, who's 47. And, and, and their principal but, striker has But looks 23, to, Thiago. But looks 23. I still don't know what moisturiser Thiago Silva <laughs> uses. I want to know. But it always comes back to moisturiser with you, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mm. I don't know why. You and Simon. Um, 
Um, well, I was pleased reading the piece to learn that he used to be a wrestler. Um, yeah. Also, that he's, it's he's, a brilliantly eclectic mix. That's yeah, the best thing yeah. about this board. It's it's re- a remarkable group of people and a philanthropist as well. You know, which I'm sure will mean a lot. Like with Hans York Weiss, you know, two people who seem to have a genuine concern for others. That's that's quite a think, quite a nice thing for Chelsea Mendes, supporters. Yeah. yeah. Do you think quite. that could give him a unique edge in any sort of face-to-face negotiation, the wrestling background? <laughs> Just well, the, if things do <laughs> kick off. Walter could set the tiger on, on the on the other people. I mean, God, it's it's a remarkable group. It's absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to go and look at the piece, but the, the every member of that group has got something extraordinary about them. I'd love to be in. The, I mean, we'd all love to be a fly on the wall at a Chelsea board of directors meeting. But but my word, that they'd, they'd have some interesting conversations. That group. Yeah, really do go and look at the piece because it is fascinating. And the, the diversity amongst the group is incredible. There's a couple of other names I wanted to touch on. Barbara Sharon is, is one that stands out to me because, I mean, on the face of it, she is not somebody who you would assume would be working in that capacity at a football club. But, I don't know, she's, as one might say, proper Chels and seems to have a lot of experience in an industry, the music industry, which is not the polar opposite of the football industry in a lot of ways. No, you're right. I mean... She's from Chicago originally, so she's she, so she's another American element to a very American-centric board. But yeah, she's she's lived in the UK since the seventies, and she is, yeah, as you say, proper Chelsea. I mean, that's she was she was part of the the group that that did the blooming song that that haunts my sleeping moments. What's it called? Blue Day. Blue, Blue Day. Oh yeah. my God. <laughs> One oh, of the better cut final songs of the nineties, I'd say. Yes, it's it's one of the better, more catchy tunes. But but yeah, I yeah, please no. But yes, she she was part of that. She was invited to the um, team celebrations at the Waldorf after after that cup final in ninety seven. Again, another. I, mean, I think she'll be on the board very much in the sort of uh, almost. Not fans liaison, but she, she's she's there to represent the supporters. She, she can base. say supporters won't like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she'll say it with she'll be she won't be afraid to say it because she's made a career, speaking of mine basically, and, and being being a very strong character in a in an industry that's difficult. I thought music industry and, and, and the people that she counts as friends are of a pretty high caliber as well. So I, I think she'll hold her own in that boardroom and and she will fight the corner for Chelsea supporters, which is what the fans probably want. Uh, Lord Daniel Finkelstein is the final person I wanted to talk about. Chelsea fan, current Times columnist. Liam, I just, I just wondered if, if you were sort of excited by the fact that there is a journalist on the board and, and whether you think that that will have any impact, be it positive or negative, in the way that people like you get to access the club. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, is there something specific about the journalist's perspective that could be useful in running a football club, I don't know. I think but just that... whether he, th- he, he think it's in his interest to give journalists more access. You know, that's kind of what you always hope for, isn't it? Well, if we give you enough rope and then see if you hang yourself with it, kind of thing, and we can always rein it back in if needs be. But because he's been on certainly on that side, now he's on both sides of it. Whether he might be a bit more open to possibly, I don't. I don't know whether he would. I mean. At most, he would be advising on those things, wouldn't he? I mean, they've got a big communications department at Chelsea, and they, you know, they they decide their agenda in terms of the way they interact with journalists, and that's up to them. Um, but I think, it, you know, he, like Barbara Sharon, he's there primarily as a fan, and I think the encouraging thing for supporters is that, you know, when we were still at the stage where we had all the different bid teams and all these 
ex-players and sort of Chelsea-adjacent people were being announced and attached to various bids. Some of it felt quite arbitrary, didn't it, and very PR-led. And the fact that they are they are actually on the board, even in a non-executive capacity, shows that it wasn't purely window dressing, that they will actually be in the room and they will have some say, even if they don't get a vote. You know, they do get a voice, at least. Interesting. Fascinating times ahead. That's just a taster of the, the profile that Dom wrote. So do head to Athletic and, and check it out now and you'll be fully informed. Uh, next today, we're talking transfers. Right, so we are recording on Wednesday afternoon at quarter to five. So far, there's been lots of talk, but no actual signings for Chelsea this summer. Things seem to be gathering pace with Raheem Sterling and Rafinha in particular being talked about the most. Uh, Rafinha, Liam, Barcelona fancy him too. Plenty of other clubs interested. Chelsea's interest is, is real, tangible. They're going to put a bid in. I think they've made a big move for him in the last sort of 24 hours or so. And they've put themselves in a position where it seems like if Barcelona can't do the deal and we don't know, no one really knows Barcelona's capacity to do any deals at the moment. It's, it all seems to be smoke and mirrors in terms of what they've actually got to spend. Then I think Chelsea have put themselves in the position to, to get Rafinha if Barcelona don't. They, they, see, they certainly seem to be ahead of Arsenal and any other suitors. And it's an interesting signing, isn't it? If, if it comes to pass because I think we've been aware for a while of Tuchel not being sat- satisfied with his attacking options and that that, that goes beyond Lukaku um, it stretched back to his first season or his first half season in charge and he didn't really get to refresh things then and I think it's a, fur- it's a further signal that we will see one or, or maybe even two of the current forwards slash sort of wide attackers leaving and there's a lot of talk about Ziyech going to Milan that seems to be the likeliest destination for him we'll see how that goes as with all of these conversations the Chelsea wages are the complicating factor and that's something to be mindful of with sort of Rafinha and any other deal that Chelsea do this summer whether it's Raheem Sterling or something once they're on Chelsea money they're quite hard to get off Chelsea money um and Manchester City are in the fortunate position right now of being able to sell all their squad players to Chelsea or <laughs> other teams in England. But Chelsea don't seem to be that lucky. So they, I mean, they have they have attackers that aren't particularly satisfied with with life under Tuchel either. It's pretty clear that you know Ziyech is on that list, Pulisic, Werner. It just depends if a market develops for them. Um, and there's there's no there's no huge suitor for them right now, but it. I guess the encouraging thing for fans is that Chelsea are prepared to do a deal like Rafinha proactively without any guarantees that they can offload those guys. Interesting that a lot of the players linked are already in the Premier League. Sterling, Dom, obviously the one that's taken the most headlines. You've written about him for The Athletic and what he can bring to Chelsea. It's one of those, when you hear about a divided fan base, I think it's a guy who's won the Premier League four times and, and scores loads of goals. I don't get where the division comes from with Sterling. I think it'd be a brilliant signing. Every time I hear Liam on other podcasts talking about this, he speaks a lot of sense. It's all born of familiarity, I think. It's we all we all know what the flaws in There's Raheem Sterling's exotic, game. Is there? No, it's, it's, I think it's, people people want the crave the sort of unknown. That's why these 
some of the people that get linked to Premier League clubs over a summer, because we don't know anything about them, they suddenly become world beaters and you, you get William enticed Carvalho, by it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Get enticed <laughs> by a two-minute YouTube video of their best bits, uh, which omit which all their not-so-best bits. Is Leandro Damiao still available? Is he <laughs> still scoring goals come, come August the 30th, Chelsea will move. Um, it's Look, it's... You know what you're getting with Raheem Sterling. I, I, I think he's, I think he'd be brilliant for for Chelsea. I think he's, I think he's, he's often criticised for the the chances he misses, and people sort of people underestimate quite how ruthless he is in front of goal. And I, I lent on our analytics guy, um, Mark Carey, um, a lot for the for, for the data in that in that piece, uh, and his. I mean, Liam knows this stuff far better than I do, but his his XG and the the quality of the chances he creates for others um, are, are really really high, relatively speaking. He gets into excellent positions. Um, look, look, somebody's got to create opportunities for him to, to finish in the six yard box. But the fact that Chelsea are being are looking at people like Rafinha, are looking at Usman Dembele, people like that of that calibre who who presumably will create chances, if you've got a poacher in the box, you can actually put the ball in at the back of the net. And and bearing in mind that he has scored, I know it's for, he's playing, playing for City and it's everybody goes, oh, that, that completely warps all the figures. But he's scored, in each of the last five seasons, he's scored more goals than Chelsea's leading Premier League scorer in those respective seasons. Every year, every year. Uh, so uh, that would suggest to me that A, you're, you're buying pedigree, you're buying somebody, as you say, who has won the Premier League four times in the last five seasons in a squad where at the moment it's only Cesar Azpilicueta and Marcus Alonso, I think, of the outfield players who've actually won a Premier League at Chelsea, of the of the guys who were involved regularly. Ruben Loftus-Cheek was at the club. Oh, with Kante, yeah, fair point. And N'Golo Kante, yeah, yeah. But... Certainly, none of the forwards have. They're not the ones who've, who've experienced that. He knows what it takes to do that. He might not be the natural leader in the sort of John Terry style, old school way, but he's an inspiration still. And you'd imagine that the younger players at Chelsea would learn an awful lot from him. So if he's keen to come and he's got a year left on his contract, so the price won't be ridiculous, it's a complete no brainer as far as I'm concerned. Why has it been so public, though? That always worries me when transfer talk is so Largely because City have done their business really early, I imagine. And they know they have to clear a bit off the books. He's available. Um, he's high profile. Well, look, he may not, he may, maybe, he, maybe there are other suitors out there. Maybe other people will come out of the woodwork. You'd be surprised I, if they didn't. But. I don't think there are. And I think that's a big part of why, while, while it has been kind of public, there don't seem to have been the, the fun and games. Hmm. You know, and, and people. It's, it's public, and everybody's happy for it to be public. Yeah, yeah. Pe- every, everyone seems to be quite direct. You know, Chelsea have not hidden their interest. Manchester City have not hidden the fact that they're gonna, they have to sell him really this summer. Anything else doesn't make business sense. He's not hidden the fact that he wants to go for several months. I think everyone's just being grown-ups, um, and there isn't another market for him. There isn't another suitor, mate. Unless something drastically changes, unless Arsenal suddenly decide if they've missed out on Rafinha, they can go for Sterling. But, um, I mean, it's another case of a guy on top Premier League money not having the option, really, of going to Europe. So you are only looking at two, three other Premier League clubs and Chelsea are the one that's interested. 
everybody's acting like grown-ups maybe that's why it's so jarring um let's go rapid fire <laughs> through a few more then liam delict richarlison dembele ake zinchenko how likely are any slash all of those richarlison looks like he's off the spurs but delict is one that seems to have gathered a bit of traction and, and ake too chelsea want delict um the situation appears to be that chelsea are pitching sort of cash plus player deals um timo Werner. Christian Pulisic have both been mentioned as players that Chelsea would potentially like to include in a deal like that. And Juventus, for varying reasons, their position at the moment is that they will only take cash for the league. They want a big cash injection. And I think they maybe need one because even though they're signing Paul Pogba for free, you don't get a player like Paul Pogba for free. He's on massive wages. Juventus already have a massive wage bill. They've got like four midfielders that they want to get rid of. Aaron Ramsey is still on their books. Di Maria you know, coming in too. Di Maria on, coming in, which is another reason that, you know, that could be another complicating factor if that deal gets done in their their potential interest in like Werner or Pulisic. You know, there's that has a lot less appeal if you've if you've just gone out and signed Di Maria. I think the whole Dybala situation is up in the air as well. I'm not sure whether Inter are actually going for him or not. It feels like there are so many because there were so many free agents so many high value free agents and a lot of people with quite extensive contract demands there's a lot of waiting going on there are a lot of players trying to assess their options trying to smoke out better offers there are a lot of clubs trying to figure out exactly where players are going to fall and I think we had a a feeling going into this window that maybe once the Haaland and Bappe dominoes settle that everything else would immediately follow and it's not panning out that way there's a lot of brinkmanship still going on I think a big part of it is as we mentioned no one knows what Barcelona's financial state is and a lot of players are waiting on Barcelona um, so we'll see how that goes but as far as delict, Chelsea want to sign a defender they would like it to be delict, I think um, but there's also Kunde, who's severe I think are quite motivated to sell for the right price and Skriniar, who Inter apparently have to sell. They have to sell him in this window. They need a cash injection even more than Juve do. Apparently, they've just signed some really expensive striker on loan, <laughs> um, which, which, which plays into that. Um, but Skriniar is like the designated big money sale. So Chelsea might end up lucking into him if PSG don't close that deal. But it, there's so many ripple effects that uh, haven't fully played out yet. Okay, it's an interesting one, Dom. I, I remember being told at, at the time that he left that, that Antonio Conte it was basically, we can either keep Ake or Christensen, who do you want? And he said Christensen because he's a bit taller. And Christensen's leaving and Ake might be coming back. Would, would that be a step backwards for Chelsea to get him or would he be an improvement on what they've got? Well, he's left-sided, I guess. So if you're going to play a three, then he could he could start in there, replacing Rudiger. I'm a, I don't know. I, I, I've been a bit underwhelmed with what he's done at Manchester City and the fact that he hasn't been able to really make a big impact there or hold down a regular place. I'm not quite sure how that would be perceived by the, the supporter base if he came back. And, and look, I, that's probably grossly unfair because he's a talented footballer who's a, he's got aspirations to be at the World Cup in in December, uh, November, December time. So he, he wants to be playing regularly over the first five months of next season as well. He's clearly a very talented guy, but I'm not quite sure how it would be perceived. Maybe that maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe, I'm, as I say, maybe I'm being unfair. Um, but 
I wonder, he, he has a feel of a backup to me. Uh, let's talk about the outgoings then. Liam, you've already labelled the Lukaku deal catastrophic. He's having a medical today as we record at Inter. Um, we spoke about how uh, Petr Cech and Marina Granovskaya maybe would have kept him around for a second season. Presumably that's not the case with Thomas Tuchel. He just wanted rid of him. Really. Yeah, I think that relationship was not tenable. Um, whatever Tuchel has said publicly, whatever he may say publicly about the relationship with Lukaku, I don't think it was good. Um, and it was by the end, it was it was a football problem, but I think it was a it was a personality problem as well. And I think there's probably a bit of blame everywhere for that. They're not just not just Lukaku not adapting and not maybe throwing himself into this Chelsea return in the manner that he said he was going to. Even though he ended up as the club's top scorer. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, well, you only had to beat Jorginho in a few penalties really <laughs> to get that honour. Um, but also, it's, it, it is a failure of Tuchel's man management. You know, it's not necessarily he should be sacked, but it's, I think it's something that you have to be mindful of. And now if the forwards that do come in, be it Sterling, Rafinha or anyone else that Chelsea sign, Tuchel's going to own these now. These are his picks. These are the players he's identified primarily that he wants in his squad. And if he can't get the best out of them, that failure will belong to him, I think, far more squarely than Lukaku, which is just a collective failing on, on, on Chelsea that shines badly on everyone. The other thing about it is it's not a solution. The this problem resurfaces yeah, 12 this months time next now. year. It's going to come back and they're going to have to deal with it then. You know, and I suppose we, we, we don't know we don't know that the new ownership's attitude towards coaches and whether they're going to go through as many quite as, as the previous regime did and you'd like to think they probably wouldn't given the emphasis that Tuchel has, has been well that's been placed on Tuchel in terms of recruitment this summer but so there's got to be a good chance that Thomas Tuchel is still in charge this time next year so what do they do then with Lukaku a, a depreciating asset on their books are Inter Milan likely to be able to afford him this time next year Something pretty remarkable is going to have to happen in the world economy for that to be the case, really. And, and What happens if he bangs in 10 goals at the World Cup in the winter? Is it, presumably he's at Inter for the season and that's yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I, not, I, a club's not going to come in it's and say... Weirdly, we'll I, mean, I, I did a piece on the World Cup and, the, and what it's, the influence it's having, having on the transfer window this summer. And, and that is, that, there's a paranoia amongst a lot of clubs at the moment about loaning players out for the season in case they suddenly do really well. A lot of these have options that can be taken up by the the club that's taking them on, and the, and there are a lot of clubs out there that are worried that oh hold on if this fellow goes and does really well in Qatar, uh, we're going to look pretty stupid given we've just said that they can have him for fifteen million or twenty five million or whatever come the summer, um, but such are the vagaries of the transfer market, and and that that is another indication of quite how. That situation with Lukaku soured at Chelsea, that they're, that they're willing to, to let that happen. That they're literally, that this isn't a place for him at the club um, for the foreseeable future. But they're going to have to address that again next summer and find out something, you know, what, he can't become another Mishi Batshuayi, not at £100 million, surely. Well, there have, been, there have been suggestions of like a gentleman's agreement for a second loan at Inter because you can't technically arrange two-year loan deals. Is, is that a Daniel Levy gentleman's agreement or one that's likely <laughs> to be stuck to? I think you always have to be sceptical of gentleman's agreements in, in football, but 
there's been reporting of that and maybe an option for Inter to buy him a knockdown price in the future. But the problem is there are no guarantees that Inter will be able to give Chelsea a significant fee next summer, the year after. They're, they're not in a good financial place. And the wage issue is not going away. I mean, Lukaku apparently has already... The suggestion is he's taken about 30 35% pay cut to go back to Inter, which shows the strength of his desire to actually go there. And I commend him for doing that because I think a lot of players allow themselves to be trapped by their contracts rather than just go somewhere and play and play as long as you're still earning good money, which he's he is. He's still earning more than he was at Inter. Yeah, absolutely. Last year. So it's still it's still an unequivocal win. But that he's gonna to have to be prepared to take a more lasting cut on that contract because at the moment, if you're earning north of three hundred thousand pounds a week, there are five clubs in the world that can pay that in this climate. And if None of them want you. Uh, you're kind of screwed. So I th- if he wants to stay at Inter beyond this season, I think it's going to require a more lasting sacrifice from him. And of course, Chelsea to accept a bit more egg on their face, which I think the new owners are more than happy to do because it wasn't their mistake. So Lukaku's walking. What do we know about Azpilicueta and Alonso? Are we expecting that, that they're both going to Barcelona? I mean, we might as well call this pod straight out of Catalonia today. <laughs> the amount of times we mentioned Barcelona, but... Again, do Barcelona have any money? And that doesn't just apply to buying players, but registering players. Can they actually register Andreas Christensen, who has you know, agreed, agreed to join them months ago, but can they actually register him under their salary cap? As Pilaqueta and Alonso, they want to go... Well, I, I, think, I think this is just my hunch as Pilaqueta wants to go to Barcelona. seems pretty clear that Alonso wants to go back to Spain. They're both under contract for another year. Um, so Chelsea will expect something in return for letting them go. And that seems to be the, the stumbling block at the moment, along with the broader uncertainty about Barcelona's salary cap. So this is, this is all feeding into the uncertainty. I think, they're, I think Azpilicueta is still waiting. You know, he's been on his holidays. He's back now. I think he wants to talk to the new owners. Bowley's a bit busy, as you can imagine, uh, trying to get new players in. I, I can certainly see a scenario where Azpilicueta ends up staying at Chelsea for another year because he's not the kind of character to make a fuss. He's very settled in England. It wouldn't be a huge hardship for him to stay another season. Um, and Barcelona may just not push hard enough to make it happen. Alonso's a different case because I think it would probably suit Chelsea as well to get his wages off the books. But it's again, it's not entirely up to them. Barcelona have to actually mark themselves out as a financially viable destination. Yeah, it would feel weird as well if, if Azpilicueta left without having a proper send-off, given how significant he's been for Chelsea in, in the time that he's been at the club. Um, before we move on, big oversight from me. When we were talking about Rafinha, producer Lucy asked if we could come up with a song um, because he will essentially have blown off Arsenal to come to Chelsea uh, in the way that William did to Spurs. But we spoke about Suggs earlier. Do you remember his his uh, single Cecilia from, from many moons ago? Cecilia, that one. I thought you were just going to go for Quadrophenia. No, well, see if you like this. I mean, it might be terrible, but we're in the pub, so I'm going to go for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God, this is a proper end of season. It really is. How many has he had? Podcast. End of season vibes. Just at the end of the first, but we're going to go for it anyway. So if you're familiar with the song, um, Lucy will play a bit of it in now so, so that you can hear it if you don't know it, isn't it? Uh, the chant would go, Rafinha, 
He's pied off the arse. He's shaking their confidence daily. Oh, Rafinha gave Arteta the snub. He's gone down the pub. We're too cool. We're too cool. Yeah? So can we just adapt that if Barcelona actually signed? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Is there a Spanish version or a Catalan version? See, see, I'm working on it right now. <laughs> uh, right, uh, let's move on from that as quickly as we can and never speak of it again. Uh, the appetizers of the pod are out of the way. We'll get to the real reason we're here next. That's a quiz. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back, listener, to the pub where we're recording straight out of Cobham today. Um, I've just got a round in which will hopefully ease the pain of the questions I'm about to inflict on not just Liam and Don, but producer Lucy too. She's involved today. It's real schools out kind of feel. Um, so three questions each, and they're all related to players who we've talked about during this pod as Chelsea oh, transfer targets. I should have been listening. Um, Liam, you're up first. How many goals did Nathan Ake score for Chelsea? Not as many as he scored against Chelsea. I know that. Nice way to buy some time, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've grown adept at stalling in, in, through these quizzes. Um, I'm going to say zero. Zero is absolutely correct. He didn't score. Uh, well done. Put some pressure on you, Don. In 22 appearances, how many goals has Raheem Sterling scored against Chelsea? Shrugs, that was, this not Well, he heard was shrugs. So what was his record? It was no point. He scored 20 of them. Six. It's good, but it's not right. And I'm not passing these off today because Lucy's had access to the dot. Um, the answer was four. I would have got that. <laughs> Lucy, against whom did Marcos Alonso score what's likely to be his last Chelsea goal? No, no stealing? No stealing. Oh. oh, no, but they haven't seen the dock. 
Um, no, I yeah, saw the I'm game. Trying wait, I'm trying to keep it fair in your favour because if they can steal and you can't, then you're never going to win. Um, he scored against Plymouth. That was a long time ago, though. And then he didn't really play. I, I have no idea. It's, it's quite quite recent. Who did we play at the end of the... No, because if I get it right, you're going to think that I've cheated. No, I'm no, no, trying to get I, I it did, right. I, I have Lucy, no idea. Lucy, we genuinely are. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I didn't put the answers to yours in the doc that you and I share, so there's no way you can... If, if you tank the quiz having seen the answers, I'll have less respect for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh... so just for clarity and the integrity of the quiz, listener, Lucy definitely hasn't seen the answers. I've got them in a separate note on my phone that she doesn't have access to. I haven't... Um, I have no idea. It was Leicester City. In May. I don't... Even, I didn't even know we played Leicester. <laughs> Play them twice every season, at least. Um... <laughs> For the, for the last few seasons. James Madison scored a nice goal in that game. He did, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember that. Marcus Alonso scored one too. Um, Liam, how many times has Matthias De Ligt played against Chelsea? Uh, the season Ajax played Chelsea in the Champions League group stage, he'd already left. Um, so, I'm going to say twice. Absolutely correct. Two for two. It was last season for Juventus, both times. Uh, Dom, need to get this really. <laughs> Against whom did Cesar Aspilicueta score his first Chelsea goal? Always remember this. It's like one of the easiest questions. What? <laughs> I can picture the goal in my mind's eye. Was it a screamer? Ish. Oh. I think Adam Hurry would be cross if we called it a scream, but yeah. it was a good goal. So was it in 2012-13? Yes. Mm, maybe 13-14, actually. Didn't score in his first season, there's a little clue for you. He didn't score in his first season. Okay, so it was 13-14. I'm just desperately trying to check that it wasn't, it wasn't Palace. <laughs> <laughs> Because we lost 2-1 at the bridge that year and I don't think he scored. Um, who's someone mildly annoying he would have been in the Premier League that season? But that wouldn't have rendered him a talisman. So it wouldn't be a Spurs or not like that. It must be someone... Wouldn't have rendered him a talisman. <laughs> is, that, is that even... Is that even a sentence. You're actually speaking something that came sh- would have come straight out of your copy. <laughs> Do you know Liam? Do you know? He's here. I don't. Oh, <laughs> oh, um, I don't know, but he would have been playing left back that season. Wouldn't he? It's annoying that no one remembers this. It's like quite. Thirteen four. He would have been playing. No, I've not got a clue. Gonna have to push you. It's a bit harsh. Um, okay, let's say um, Sunderland. Good, but it's not right. Arsenal away, League Cup fourth round. Oh, right. right that's yeah. what I Did you not say Premier League? I Damn it, I would have got it if you'd t- <laughs> I thought that was scree- screamerish, wasn't it? Like a long ball and then yeah, he just hit yeah. it, hammered it in. I think if maybe, and again, we need hurry to define this, but maybe you'd ascribe that to him as a screamer because he's not a regular goal scorer. Was it a right footed shot? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't that uncharacteristic. No, but let's not was... get bogged down in the semantics of it. Uh, Lucy, here's your <laughs> second on, question. Uh, Rafinha scored a penalty four leads against Chelsea at Stamford Bridge last season what was his other notable contribution to the game 
had Jorginho scored to make it 3-2. Stop trying. I'm not that tragic. I need to be <laughs> cheat. I need to cheat. Is it really obvious? There's a clue in the question. Notable contribution. That's He's... not the clue. Rafinha scored a penalty for Leeds against Chelsea. Oh, he, he gave the penalty away. He did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sort of half a point for that, but it's done basically. But fine, I'll give you that. Okay, so. Uh... That was his ploy to get a Chelsea contract, get, letting them win. Liam, if you get this right, you've won. How many times did Romelu Lukaku score in back-to-back appearances for Chelsea last season? So in successive games, he registered, netted, bagged. With back-to-back games, we're not talking about either side of his lengthy injury absence, are we? Might be. Back-to-back appearances for Chelsea. Uh, All competitions. All comps. Um... I'm going to say twice. It's incorrect. It was four times, I believe. Really? Yeah, which um, sounds weird, but I I double-checked it and it seemed to be right. Um, Okay, so you haven't got one right yet, Dom, so this is for pride. Well, technically that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) You've got half a point. Uh, In 93 appearances, how many Premier League goals did Andreas Christensen score? Um... I remember us making a big thing about him scoring his first goal, so I'm presuming that was his only one, but I can't remember whether it was in the Premier League or not. In fact, I don't think it was. I think it was in the. I think it was in Europe, so n- zero. Zero is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's worth one and a half. Uh, in the Champions League, and he scored against Chesterfield in the FA Cup too, right? I was just admiring the cogs at work there. That's <laughs> great. <laughs> so you're on the board. Uh, Lucy, let's see if you can follow suit. Liam's already won, but, you know... Um, just, just to uh, just keep it fun. <laughs> if you get, if Simon was here and I gave him this question, he would be fuming. By the way, um, according to the Sun newspaper, which of Nathan Ake's former Chelsea academy teammates was in attendance at the Dutch defender's wedding in Mallorca earlier this? Oh week? my God! I watched. I saw all these pictures. Former academy teammate. I actually looked at all Virgil the pictures. Virgil van Dijk was there. Genie Wan Elden was there. All the Bournemouth lads were there. Hell of a do by the by the looks of things. But we're looking for oh. the Chelsea Dev Squad regular under eighteen. Won the youth cup together. Won the youth league together. Do you both know? <laughs> <laughs> under 18s. Can you give me a clue? No. Yeah, he's supposed to Chelsea. I would. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I thought, uh, no, it can't be. Let's just brainstorm this. Yeah, because well, I, I mean, you've already given yourself a clue. Bournemouth. Yeah. Josh, no. Joshua King was there. He's not. Che- is he Chelsea? Chelsea? No. Little Ryan Fraser was there. So he was at Bournemouth as well, was he, this fellow? <gasps> oh! oh! Solanke. Solanke is well correct. Done. Yes! Well done, but I'm afraid Liam's the winner. No, Um, no, no, Lucy's Lucy's the winner of that one. That celebration alone. Listen, you're the loser. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It looked like a fun wedding, though. Congratulations, Nathan. Uh, Right, I think we better wrap this up fairly swiftly. Uh, In terms of other Chelsea content on the Athletic, we mentioned those two Daniel Taylor pieces, well worth a look. Simon spoke to Jake Clark Salter after the former academy defender, as far as we know, not present at the AK wedding, uh, made the move to QPR. Uh, Jake gave Simon an exclusive on his international future. So give that a read to uh, find out what that was. Liam, what are you working on at the moment? 
literally as we record, I'm working on a Rafinha um, data. Piece. <laughs> da- yeah, a Rafinha data-led piece with Mark Carey about you know how he would maybe look at Chelsea, which may never see the light of day if Barcelona <laughs> finds sixty million pounds down the back of the sofa. If it does, will you put the chant in? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's like an audio file. Do you want us to put your rendition? Yeah, we um, sometimes put little audio clips on athletic pieces. I'm going to pass that up the chain. I'm going to pass responsibility <laughs> for that decision up. Very diplomatic. Don, what are you working on? You mentioned briefly your, your Winter World Cup and how it affects the transfer window. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, that, that, that's that's on the site. It's about about players actually like, like Conor Gallagher and, and how... He will be approaching the next five months. If, if for example, preseason doesn't go particularly well, or if it goes very well, can he can he hold down a regular place at Chelsea to guarantee him a place in in Southgate's squad? It's it's that type. Players are thinking along these lines now because of the fact that it's a, a winter World Cup in the Northern Hemisphere, a mid-season tournament, uh, which is unusual, and it is affecting how. How they do their business, and they're having to, or similarly, they're having to plan ahead for how January is going to be, because inevitably, all the players that go to the World Cup, there will be some kind of emotional fallout or hangover that that, that follows them home. Um, so when the, the league resumes, physically, mentally, the players are going to be knackered. So that's on the site. Um, I'm hoping to write up an interview with Jason Yule, who's just left Charlton after a, a, a long stint as a coach there, gone to Bristol City. Um, and in, in similar, similarly to, to Liam, spent a lot of time working on a, a profile of young Hugo Ekitike. Two spells because I thought I was going to go out in January, and then I thought it was going out in the summer. Going to Newcastle. Apparently, he's not going to Newcastle now, so that's been spiked as well. <laughs> <laughs> Loads more great stuff up on the Athletic now, though. Uh, stuff that has actually made the cut. There's a bit on Levi Colwell uh, as well that Simon has just dropped onto the site, uh, which is worth your time athletic.com slash Chelsea pod the place to go to sign up if you aren't currently a subscriber remember listen we'll be back in your ears once a week until the season begins so do join us next week when we'll hopefully be updating you on some new faces coming into Stamford Bridge until then many thanks to Dom to Liam to Lucy and to you for joining us we're going back to our pints we'll speak to you next week bye for now cheers The Athletic.